Welcome to episode 443 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a very insightful, intelligent, raucous, and fun conversation with physicist Dr. Declan Mulhall. We talk about the early days in Ireland when he realized how much he enjoyed mathematics and physics, about coming to the United States and studying, getting into areas of thought such as quantum chaos, poetry, religion, literature, oscilloscopes. We talk about nuclear magnetic resonance, about arrogance, humbleness, relationships, suffering, joy, and the point of it all, among other things. A grand conversation with Declan Mulhall this go-round. We have an EW essay titled Divine. We share an excerpt from The Tao of Physics by Austrian-American physicist Fritjof Capra. And we have a poem called Swoon. All of this, of course, will be imbued, infused, with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 443 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Divine. 
stone-cold atheist, interferometry, the savage beast, and docile scientist. How this all happens is defined by the body and mind. Is there really a figurative heart and intangible soul? I guess it depends on who you poll. But there again exists a glitch in the system. It's merely opinion. Or is it faith? Are the two much different? Not sure we could extrapolate. Here's a bridge not too far. A Catholic priest and an Irish physicist walk into a bar. No, truly, I'm pretty certain this isn't as uncommon an occurrence as one might surmise. The two order wine, beer, whiskey, and seltzer, a sausage sandwich for the father, and a robust garden salad with fries for the man of science. As the early evening moves into night, their conversation becomes less and less nuanced and contrite. What is the meaning of existence, human and otherwise? What is a life that leaves a worthwhile legacy? Perhaps Rachmaninoff, or Iggy Pop, or Helen Keller, or the Great Divine, Sojourner Truth, my Puerto Rican ophthalmologist Ruth, Dylan Thomas, or Rumi, or that East African poet I read while an undergrad. Buddha from his riches, or Fagin leading a troop of sons of bitches. Alverta and Jack trimming their bushes, Paul and Glenn polishing the hardwood in their new home. The monarch butterfly fluttering its wings on the church's golden dome. The spirit of laughter and harmony of bluebird robin song, sometimes all well enough on their own.
Declan Mulhall. Is that you? It's me, yeah. How are you getting on? Pretty good. Oh, you have your video on. You look great. Do I look Here. good? Dr. Declan Mulhall, thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And before we get started, I'd like to share with the listeners a little background information. Dr. Declan Mulhall is a professor at the University of Scranton. He teaches quantum mechanics, statistical and thermal physics, intro to nuclear and particle physics, modern physics and its lab, E&M lab, and general physics courses. His research interests include theoretical nuclear physics and quantum chaos in the nucleus. Recently, he has been focusing on advanced labs and is a member of the Advanced Laboratory Physics Association, acronym ALPHA. He has attended ALPHA seminars on modern interferometry and nuclear magnetic resonance and incorporates them in his modern physics labs. Dr. Mulhall is a member of the American Physics Society and the American Association of Physics Teachers. In his spare time, he grows oriental lilies, argues about philosophy, and worries about physics. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is excited to have on the program Dr. Declan Mulhall. So nice to take time out of your busy schedule, Declan, to be on the program. Thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, we've talked a few times before, uh, never in this manner. We've talked at uh, local pubs, and we've talked on public access television and um, college radio, and it's so nice to have you on, on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I always wanted to uh, make it a regular thing to talk to a very intelligent and insight, insightful physicist, and, and finally, I have that opportunity. So let's get in. How about your background? You have a bit of an accent, so I maybe know. fill it in, fill in the blanks for the for the listeners. Well, um, I'm actually an American now because in August I got sworn in as an American citizen. Congrats. Uh, a couple of months ago, so I was delighted. But um, it took me 26 years to get around to it because I came here in 1995. And I came over here from uh, from Ireland. I, I, I got a degree in mathematics and physics in Dublin, do you see? And I, I was got a job in a chemical factory as a chemical process operator. But me, me French teacher from... Um, from college, her husband was a physicist in Trinity College Dublin, and she kept nagging me, like, "Man, you got to go to you got to go to grad school in America. You are born for this." Because I, she knew I was reading physics books and mathematics books in my spare time because I'd be doing the night shift and I had loads of spare time and I was working through, powering through these books, taking notes. But she understood that you can't do this in a vacuum. You need a society. You need to be in a context. I wouldn't have understood understood these words at the time. And so, with her encouragement, I applied to grad school, and I, I got into Michigan State University, and sure, here I am. You know, it's been a blast. Excellent. Yeah. And and, and you stayed in the university uh, uh, culture. You you like it, I, I suppose. You like being a professor and sharing these ideas with young minds, open minds? Well, uh, that's what I'd say in public on a radio, but the fact of the matter is I've become institutionalized and I'm, only, I'm not fit for anything else, or I wouldn't know how else to, I wouldn't know how else to proceed. I hear you, I hear you. Um, so when, when you were, when did you realize that physics was something that you wanted to really spend a lot of your time and energy on when you were a little, a little boy? I, I mean, again, these questions tap into um, they tap into the details of the story you, you tell yourself about yourself, as opposed to actually tapping in 
uh, the forensic facts of, you know, if you were to see the videotape of your life, what happened when and all the rest of it. So I, I do think that the story I tell myself is somewhat correlated with reality. <laughs> and so, in you know, but with that in mind, right, with that in mind, I'll, I'll answer the question. I, I think and I'm, I'm pretty sure that the that there is an, a, an epiphany I had as a probably a 10 year old, maybe a 11, 10 or 11 years old. My brother was reading an encyclopedia article on atoms, and there was this curious graphic of a of a couple of little uh, spheres stuck together and these smaller spheres whizzing around. It was one of those types of graphics. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, that's an atom. And he went on to explain what it was. And uh, I, I remember um, I remember being struck by this. This is now part of my story. This is what I remember, being deeply struck by this. And so uh, the context that this happened in was I was always very good at mathematics. Uh, and by, by which I mean, I went to, I was, I was, top of my class in the village school which mm. actually doesn't mean a damn thing now <laughs> but at the time I always felt a little bit um, good at maths you know uh, thank god I wasn't in a bigger class I would have been bang in the middle of a bigger class but it was the top of a small class so that's the way that worked out but those two things happened and I mean I had other interests I mean I wanted to be a priest of all things and I wanted to be a veterinary surgeon because I grew up in a farm and I, I loved animals uh, a lot very very much um, attached to animals but um, a, sensitive, a sensitive child on a farm uh, attached to animals, uh, that doesn't actually work out well because animals are, are treated brutally mm-hmm. and uh, they're commodified and it's actually quite, uh, it's, 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 you know, a traumatic thing to, to be a sensitive animal lover on a, on a livestock farm. You gotta, you know, you watch your loved ones, uh, you know, behaving in ways that don't make sense to you. Because you haven't become hardened and sinis- you haven't become hardened to it, you know, so... So the veterinary surgeon thing, that, that took a blast. And, and uh, you know, a year after seeing my brother read the encyclopedia article, I became a rather staunch atheist, actually, with the help of the local priest. So that was my other uh, career move uh, crushed. So that left me being a mathematical physicist, which I ended up, I ended up becoming. So it's become, in a way, a, a religion, perhaps, a philosophy that, that you live by? No. Uh, it hasn't become, in a way, a religion that I live by. It's become um, it's become uh, a deep part of my identity. It's become a daily experience. Uh, I think about physics all the time. Um, uh, I'm deeply attached. I, 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 uh, that's a tough question. I, I think about physics all the time. When I look out, I'm, I'm thinking about how the world is physically. Where there is no matters of opinion, there is no emotion, there's no emotional content. There is the universe has revealed itself to us in cold, uh, neutral, unemotional ways. And it's so beautiful and uh, gripping and all that. That's the response I have to it. Um, And that sounds like a flamboyant or whatever, but that's actually my experience of the world and my experience of being a physicist and and, uh, knowing a little bit of mathematics as well. Um, but that's what it is. It has nothing. It doesn't make. Um, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't really uh, inform me of how to proceed in interpersonal relationships or how to deal with um, uh, relationships or anything like that. And it doesn't. Like I'm involved in a lot of other things. A lot of other things actually quite overextended. I feel uh, physics doesn't help me with this stuff. It calms me. And. Uh, well, it doesn't help me with, with non-physics stuff. But it's just a beautiful thing. 
So like poetry, like art. Yeah. What about them? Physics is similar to that. When you described how beautiful it is, when you see things, and I guess you, I understood you to say without emotion, it, it, it presents itself. And, yeah. and, and in a way, you understand, in a way, to a certain extent, you understand how it's happening. And that is probably exhilarating. I, I would say that's true. And from my friends, because I'm in a liberal arts university, the University of Scranton, and um, a lot of my friends are actually all of my friends are non-physicists. Some of them are, are in the arts. They are, um, you know, their joy is, is, is uh, words and, you know, prose and poetry and that kind of stuff. And I, I have friends from other disciplines. Well, yeah, I would say that um, I would say that all of my friends actually, yeah. So the ones I have science friends, and they're they're deeply immersed in their field. I have friends who who uh, are, are eat, breed, and sleep biology. And yet, when we meet, we talk about biology, we talk about physics, but we really talk about books and poetry. So, yeah, literature. When you say books, you mean literature. Sorry, yeah, literature, yeah, literature and poetry. We talk about that a lot, actually. Yeah. When when you uh, let's let's talk a little bit about. I love all of that too, and we can talk about that. But I'd like to take the opportunity to delve into your expertise. What are some of the the concepts that you know that you're you're I guess steeped in right now? Maybe in your classroom or or in the laboratory or in some of your your own explorations in physics. Maybe you can share with the listeners a little insight and get us a little excited about them. Okay, so I've got two classes of problem that I work on. One of them is theoretical nuclear physics problems that I work on with my advisor from Michigan State University. I was trained in the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory, which is a, a so-called atom smasher. We, it accelerates uh, atomic nuclei and smashes beams and beams of them off, off targets. And uh, I was a theorist, a nuclear theorist, and I worked in quantum chaos. What that means is... Um, there's uh, oh, uh, it's. I really should have prepared. Uh, I really should have prepared a good sentence to describe this. But I'm going to say some things, and I hope that they'll be surprising to you. <laughs> and then I'll say the other type of project they do, which is more understandable. The quantum chaos projects I work on address the following remarkable observation: If you get a bunch of particles, call them, maybe you get 12 or 13 particles, and you make a toy model in a, in, a, in a theoretical construct. You make a toy model that's kind of realistic, and you say these particles, um, they have random collisions, but they conserve angular momentum. When you do that, this completely chaotic random spectrum, the random ways they have of having energy, have... Um, very strong regularities. So, for example, their ground states uh, appear as almost completely spherical, which is ridiculous. Why would that happen? Um, their their so-called energy levels are, are almost like a, a ladder or a stairs. That's ridiculous. Why would that happen? The answer, and okay, the answer it turns out is from a very uh, a previously erudite area called random matrix theory. <laughs> which actually depends on the properties of a table of random numbers. Uh, it's, it's bizarre, it's very beautiful, and it's very simple. The most surprising thing I've learned over the last couple of years, I was working with a guy in, in, on a small project at Brookhaven National Lab, and he is in charge of the library of neutron resonance data. And I said, 
Dave, like, why are we wasting our lives on this? I mean, there's people in Syria with no apartments and no running water for years. And look at me and you, well-fed brats worrying about quantum chaos. This is stupid. It's a waste of life. Defend yourself. And he said, okay, well, here's how I'll defend myself. We need to know the properties of these spectra to do real nuclear engineering because we need to know how neutrons in nuclear reactors affect the machinery that they're that are inside. So a nuclear reactor has a lot of radiation. This radiation affects the machinery of the nuclear reactor. It, the nuclear reactor is made of copper pipes and this and that and the other. There are some elements in the nuclear reactor that when they're exposed to neutrons for a number of years, a reaction happens. This reaction changes their form and they can become flammable, right? The way you would predict whether or not this is a danger is by looking at neutron transport code. The neutron transport code needs the information I can provide with random matrix theory. So we have this astonishing fact that an erudite mathematical field called random matrix theory tells you something useful about the atomic nucleus in tremendously abstract reasons. It tells you something useful about the atomic nucleus in the sense of its density of states. That useful information goes into a model that helps you predict whether or not a neutron flux at a particular part in a reactor will catch fire when immersed in water. Like, for example, what happened in Fukushima. That's what I was thinking. Now, that is absolutely bizarre. But here we are, you know. I mean, so, okay, that's, that's, I think that that's kind of interesting, right? Yes. Kind of, okay, good. I'm, I'm glad you find that interesting. It's a bit nerdy, but it's pretty interesting. The second class of or project I work on is uh, projects that will take an undergraduate physics major um, uh, to do something really cool in the lab. So we'll recreate a historical uh, measurement. So, um, or we'll, we'll make some apparatus that does something really cool. So we can, for example, make an interferometer, which is a, a just, you can, you can go into a lab and you can screw some mirrors together, shine a laser on it, and you can make measurements of tiny motions of a, of a uh, mirror, for example. Or we can, oh, I made a, I made a, I'm very proud of this. Uh, two years ago with a student, uh, she's now working in Michigan State University. On, uh, she's a PhD student in experimental condensed matter physics, making a quantum computer of all things. When she was here at the University of Scranton, she helped me make a nuclear magnetic resonance detector. And we actually done it. We made a circuit, we made an object, and if you put a little tiny little drop of water into it, it'll give you a, a signal that you can detect on an oscilloscope that'll tell you how strong the magnetic field of the proton is. So that's kind of cool. We made it out of like, made it out, actually, actually, uh, you won't believe it, I made it in a biscuit tin. <laughs> I mean, really, it was from scrap. I just, I read somewhere you could do it, and I had a sabbatical. So I went after this project like a, like a, a maniac. I mean, it was, it was maniacal, because I actually had to teach myself how to make circuits. I wasn't good at that. And I spent months at it, and it didn't work. Then one day, it worked. Was that sabbatical down at Temple? No, that, the Temple sabbatical was, um, the, 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 the sabbatical before that, and that's when I worked on, um, oh yeah, the Temple sabbatical, actually, that was actually kind of cool. What I've done in that is, I developed, uh, I developed a, a, a way of using random matrix theory, which is what we just discussed, uh, to detect missing levels in neutron resonance data. So, uh, that was actually kind of nice, so I worked on that in Temple, and I lived in Temple uh, with my wife and children, in right near Bryn Mawr, or... Um, Sorry, not Bryn Mawr, but um, Ballakinwood near the Barnes Foundation. 
that was kind of cool. Philadelphia, nice, nice city. Yeah, nice place, Philadelphia. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely city. And so you you already kind of touched on this, and I I'd like to maybe more more clearly ask it. Go on. All, all of all of these exploits, these these uh, experiments, they, they lead to helping humanity. In 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 what way? Why why is physics? Uh, no, Larry, that's a dirty question. I thought we were friends. <laughs> Listen to me. If nobody ever done any of the stuff I done, the world would be none the wiser. I'd be better off if I if I um. There was a lovely, there was a really gorgeous scene in the first Wonder Woman movie, where uh, Wonder Woman uh, is is in the real world. You know, she's off the island and she's walking through London, and the lad says you know, sells her an ice cream. So she has an ice cream and she's absolutely stunned. And she doesn't say, this is delicious. What she said was, oh my God, this is delicious. You must be so proud of yourself. And that really moved me, that scene. Because I thought, well, Jesus, isn't, like, wouldn't it be lovely to be actually proud of the the real, humble, simple achievements? But uh, I'm plagued with, um, I, I have a, a double a double problem. I have a what's called a hostile interject. So I'm always down on myself. I think I'm lazy, but I work no matter how hard I work. And I also have a kind of an arrogance where I think that my life is wasted unless I do something special. But I'd much rather just make good ice cream and be proud of myself, like the vendor, you know? So yeah, honestly, I do all this physics stuff because um, it feeds some kind of a psychological kink where I feel this is valuable. So I now have, I now have value. Uh, which I'd like to, I'd like to shake off, and, and I think that this holds me back from my true happiness. To be perfectly honest with you, and I don't really know what my true happiness is. It's definitely more, more towards making the experiments with the with the undergraduates. That's really that is a real joy, you know. This other stuff is kind of fancy pants, beautiful stuff. But I'd also like to find, um, I'd like to find uh, a happiness in the genuine. Um, common or garden quotidian moments of my day that are worthy of happiness and worthy of respect. But I honestly don't respect them. I think that there's some kind of a twisted arrogance that gets in the way of me enjoying the humble aspects of my day. Maybe you need to, maybe you're doing it, Buddhism, you know, maybe you explore that. Is that an option? It sounds like being attachments, you know, all of that, you know, defining yourself and the way you just described is, is what leads to suffering. According to Buddhism, as as far as I understand, and I'm sure there are other aspects. I don't know. I don't really know what you're saying, but I'll tell you one thing. One little breakthrough I've had. I don't really understand uh, much of what you just said, actually, about Buddhism. But here's something that has given me joy in my life, and it's also been a source of stress and, uh, uh, I would say, um, exhaustion. Um, we, the University of Scranton has started an associate's degree in the state penitentiary in Dallas. And I have been teaching their first class. And I teach a course on energy and society um, to the um, prisoners. And that is, it's a common or garden 100 level course, an actual science course that you get in, a, in your first year in an undergraduate degree at a liberal arts university. And that has been, um, I would say, a source of immense meaning to me. Because? I'm not sure because because the students are um, they're so into it and they like it so much. I'll tell you why. The bottom line is this. Um, you can say what you want. There's a couple of dangers and I'd like to comment on the dangers of this whole track. But 
Because when I walk into the classroom, I'm always there a little bit early and I'm setting up my books and stuff. And the lads come in. And it's not a great time being locked up. Some of them have been locked up a long time. But they come in and we are, we're beaming. We're beaming like we're at a six-year-old's birthday party. We shake hands. We catch up and say, how was your week? You know, what did you, you know, what's, what's shaking? What's moving? Is everything cool? And we sit down and for three hours, we have a really um, hectic, vigorous uh, educational experience with physics and energy in the environment. And it's, uh, it just seems like it's got value. These guys are doing something. These guys are being really resilient. They have the skill of doing time. They have carved a meaningful life out of an incarcerated environment. And I'm part of that. And that makes me, that feels meaningful. I want to be very clear on something, though. This, this kind of an interaction is wide open for the kind of um, patronizing that objectifies people and turns them into occasions of charity or, you know, uh, like, look, there's Larry. He needs someone to interview for his radio show. Aren't I a great man? I'm helping Larry out. That kind of stuff. No. Yeah, one has to be very careful with that stuff. Um, I'm, I'm probably, and if you listen back to this interview, I'd say it's pretty clear. I'm a little bit lost in the world. Don't really know what I'm doing. And I find that I'm happy. On the way to Dallas Penitentiary and on the way home from the penitentiary. And I'm grateful for that. So who's winning? Who's who owes who what? You ask me what gives me meaning, that gives me a little bit of meaning. That's nice. And it's not necessarily because of the concepts that you're teaching. It's the fact no, it's that it's relationships. Yeah. It's about relationships. Yeah, it's about the relationships. So yeah, teaching does afford you that. Yeah, yeah. You, you make all kinds of relationships with all kinds of people, and to and it, it's all. It, I mean, you you connect intellectually, but I guess there's a there's a spiritual component to it, right? Uh, as well. I don't know what that means. We stop using the word spiritual, right? I don't know what I'm it means. Telling you either. how I live my life, and I don't. I got, I can go. I can go for five hours and not repeat myself, and I don't know what the word spiritual means. Uh, well, I guess it's other than intellectual. You know what I mean? It's, it's Jesus, that's a big rug. That's a big rug. You can sweep a lot under that rug. Other than uh, next one. No, I'm not. Larry, I got you. I mean, I mean deliberately contrary. And that's okay. That's okay. I know what you mean, but I, I, I do, I do find that word to be a bit sloppy. Spiritual. Over yeah, you? You mean overused? Mean. Overused? Uh, or or sort of like a corny, kitschy thing? No, I just, no, I'm not not sure what it means. You know, I, I'm not either. I just, I mean. Yeah. Intellectual to me is is one thing, oh, and then there there are certain energies and, and connections that are not the same as what comes out of the intellectual part of my being. It's something else, and I usually just afford that or assign that a spiritual or soulful or something. I don't know what they mean either. I, I think um, I think. Okay, can I make a statement about something that confuses me greatly yes. on an almost daily basis? And sometimes it, it, it kind of it slows me down from sleeping. Uh, the experience of having fully formed sentences falling out of my mouth mm -hmm. that I didn't invent beforehand. What's going on? Mm -hmm. Existence is bizarre. <laughs> it's, it's, it's endlessly surprising. Being self-aware and conscious is, is it's bamboozling, right? I don't know. The words are still pouring out of my mouth unplanned. And here we are. These words communicate to you 
these words being received by you, enough of it for long enough constitutes a relationship between Declan and Larry. This is what makes us human. The, 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 the immediate examination of speech, of sharing ideas, of friendship and stuff like that, uh, where is the humanity? Where is the where is the act of being human in this? You can't locate it. It's unlocatable. It's bamboozling. There's clearly something else going on. There's clearly uh, we are mysteries to ourselves psychologically. We're mysteries to ourselves as entities that exist. I mean, what are you, Larry? You're a bunch of you're a bunch of nerves. You're a, you're a, a trillion nerves firing off each other. What the hell? I have no idea what consciousness is. Uh, we're like, I'm like a, a caterpillar that someone says to him, how'd you walk? Run it by me again. And he can't do it. I have no idea. I can't withstand any kind of self, uh, uh, you know, self-examination on that level to, to, to locate my humanity, my existence or anything. So, yeah, maybe the word for that is spiritual. But I find spiritual is, is uh, you know, the, the paucity is offensive. You have offended me, sir. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. And, you know, th- this is, to me, the, what you talked about regarding physics, what you talked about regarding relationships. I mentioned poetry. We're talking humanity, spirituality. It's all the same, really. It's all the same. It's all inconceivable. And as you said, it just aligns itself. It just falls out of whatever our mouth we see it with our eyes and we, we you didn't include physics in that did you? i did f- include oh, physics no larry no you, you can't you can't do that see, why not it's all the same because physics is completely different physics is the one thing that's not like this how is that how could that be well, i'll tell you how that can be i'll tell you how that can be now because true thoughts and words that describe the external world you can discover trends and call them laws. And then you can imagine the implications of these laws in scenarios that you have not yet witnessed. And this leads you to prediction. And then after uh, a community doing this, talking about it, uh, emerges a theory of the world where you can, on one hand, look at mathematical uh, symmetries and beauty in equations. You can look at how you know the world works so far And then you can build a machine that says, if we're right about the world, when we smash these beams off each other, we'll discover new particles. And then you build the machine, you smash the beams off each other, and you discover new particles. And these particles have been discovered, but they've been taught with your thoughts and your logic beforehand. That is not the same as what I'm talking about. That is the external world being discovered by these bamboozling miracles that our consciousness are. You can't lump in physics and predictive sciences and stuff with the experience and beauty of, of, of our own internal humanity and our organism. Our organism, the beauty and mystery and genius of it, discovers and illuminates how the world works. But they're different. There's how the world works. And there's this little uh, mystery embedded within the world of Larry and Deck making these sounds, making these articulate grunts and communicating. Right, so they're completely different. You can't lump that stuff in. That's why I bristled, Larry. Yes, indeed, I bristled. I watched you it. You used the word spirituality. <laughs> You've offended me twice. I might do you understand hear. what I'm saying, though? I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? I do, but you're you're looking at things. I think in a dual a duality, and I'm not. You know, there's a duality in the way external internal, and yeah. and and I, I'm not looking at. It. I'm looking at it all as one. 
yeah, I just don't. Yeah, sure, sure. But um, yeah, you know what though? I was I was about to say, but then I stopped because I felt kind of wrong. I was about to say I don't find those conversations useful. I was about to declare, but. Um, I think that that's probably a matter of taste. I mean, uh, and and do you see what I did there? Like, I evaluate whether or not a conversation is useful. I mean, that's that's not really. Yeah. I, I want to pull back. I want to pull back from that. And there's a style of talking that suits or doesn't suit. But I, I would not want to denigrate or or um, I would not want to denigrate your your style of of talking when you talk about duality and spirituality and stuff like that. I want to pull back a little bit, actually. I want to say I have offended you, and I apologize. No, you don't need to apologize. <laughs> First of all, it's not about really what I think so much. The whole no, objective know, yeah. is for me to hear you more. I'm just trying to steer the conversation a bit, and maybe it's just boring to you what I'm saying, and that's fine too. You know, it's, it's anything but actually. It's anything but actually. Uh, you're concerned with, well, as far as I'm, as far as I know, you're concerned with the thing that I think we're all deep down concerned with, right? I mean, uh, I mean, we exist, right? I don't want to die. Yeah, I don't really know how to live or why I'm living or what I'm living for. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm confounded by my existence, but I don't want it to stop. Right, right. Some uh, days, some days I want it to stop, but not really. Not really. Yeah, yeah, some days it's a drag, but Jesus, I mean, if, if, if you know, yeah, if anyone came along and if anybody came along and threatened to stop it, you definitely put up a fight, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the... but why? Like, I, there is no, I don't want to say why, why do you want to live? Living is better than dying. I mean, for God's sake, we want to be alive. That's just, a, it's a kind of an, a biological, psychological imperative to anybody that's half healthy, right? Right. But, but it's still, it's kind of confusing. I mean, I don't know how to think about it. Like, what, what's the point of my day? what is a day, you know, what's like, where's the kick, man? I, I, I say this to my wife all the time, and she's like, look, the kick is in the, the kick is in the, in the moment where you're connected and floating like a leaf on the river of life. And these little moments of connection, that's where the kick is. <laughs> yeah, it's fine, but I, I want, uh, I want a kick kick. She, well, she's got it. And I, and I asked my wife the same it. thing. I asked my wife the same thing, and she tells me pretty much the same thing. Thank God for our wives. Otherwise, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think something you mentioned earlier might have a bit to do with it, uh, and and I I feel the same way. You know, there is a this sense I I'm living to do something important. You know, I need to be important, yes. and and that's that's the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're so important, right? We're so special. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you this, though. I want you to hold in your mind the notion that yes, I, Larry, what is my legacy? I would like to leave something. How do I view my legacy, Donald? Then ask yourself, um, some some poor chap that doesn't have a pot to piss in, that's getting through his day in Bangladesh and rooting up a bit of food for his children. What's his legacy? Stark poverty is, is an element of the anonymous sludge of history, right? If If his life isn't worth something, if his life doesn't have dignity, then, then you're you you're just like it's a it's a monstrous view to think that 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 dude's life doesn't have some kind of dignity. Yet if his is, if his has dignity, how come it's so hard to find meaning and importance in your own? Hmm. I'm telling you, man, it's because you're too special. It's because you you think you're special, right? You, you're too. There's an arrogance. There's a specialness that stops you from having um, a real dignified life and regarding it as such. You know, do you know what I want? And I, my, 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 my bestie is a theologian, and oh God, he just, he just, he goes, he, he just gets excited when I say it. I want to follow someone 
I really have a desire to follow. I want to throw myself into a project bigger than me. Of course, he has a great idea of a person they could follow. You know, what I mean, yeah, you know, he's a Christian theologian, he's a Catholic theologian, right? So of course, Gee. he's got he's got he's got Gee. one good idea, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I get it, you know. And and I actually and I say this to my wife, like, I'm stone cold atheist, but man, it looks. I, I really think it would be great to be a to be a believer because then you would. And I say to my friends, you're lucky. You're just lucky bastards. It's all laid out for you. Just go and do the thing that is in the, the book of the things you're supposed to do. And Bob's your uncle. Your meaning is laid out for you. However, their experience, uh, Larry, is remarkably like mine and, and yours. I don't know where you stand in any of this stuff, but, but I've got me and a, and a Catholic theologian. We're having a similar experience of our days. They should be different. They should be different. On some level, they're not. So this is kind of confounding. I think that's a good place to leave it this time, Dr. Mulhall. <laughs> there you call me Declan. Declan? <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like an imposter if someone calls me doctor. <laughs> a great conversation, and I, I like to have you on again. There's so much we could talk about, and we'll, we'll make those arrangements if you're into it. But uh, thank you again for taking time out to be on oh, Troubadours. Sure, the pleasure, the pleasure was all mine. Sure, thanks very much. Thanks very much. The pleasure was mine. And I'm sorry for offending you. Oh, Jesus, that's right. I forgot I was offended. I'm going to, I love a nice grudge, so I'm going to take out that grudge and polish it now. Great. You've made a, you've made a powerful enemy. Goodbye. <laughs> take care. <laughs>
And now an excerpt from The Tao of Physics by Austrian-American physicist Fridtjof Capra. Throughout history, it has been recognized that the human mind is capable of two kinds of knowledge, or two modes of consciousness, which have been termed the rational and the intuitive, and have traditionally been associated with science and religion, respectively. In the West, the intuitive religious type of knowledge is often devalued in favor of rational, scientific knowledge, whereas the traditional Eastern attitude is in general just the opposite. The following statements about knowledge by two great minds of the West and the East typify the two positions. Socrates in Greece made the famous statement, quote, I know that I know nothing. And Lao Tzu in China said, quote, not knowing that one knows is best. In the East, the values attributed to the two kinds of knowledge are often already apparent from the names given to them. The Upanishads, for example, speak about a higher and a lower knowledge and associate the lower knowledge with various sciences, the higher with religious awareness. Buddhists talk about, quote, relative and, quote, absolute knowledge or about, quote, conditional truth and, quote, transcendental truth. Chinese philosophy, on the other hand, has always emphasized the complementary nature of the intuitive and the rational and has presented them by the archetypal pair yin and yang, which form the basis of Chinese thought. Accordingly, two complementary philosophical traditions, Taoism and Confucianism, have developed in ancient China to deal with the two kinds of knowledge. Rational knowledge is derived from the experience we have with objects and events in our everyday environment. It belongs to the realm of the intellect whose function it is to discriminate, divide, compare, measure, and categorize. In this way, a world of intellectual distinctions is created of opposites which can only exist in relation to each other which is why Buddhists call this type of knowledge, quote, relative. Abstraction is a crucial feature of this knowledge, because in order to compare and to classify the immense variety of shapes, structures, and phenomena around us, we cannot take all their features into account, but we have to select a few significant ones. Thus, we construct an intellectual map of reality in which things are reduced to their general outlines. Rational knowledge is thus a system of abstract concepts and symbols, characterized by the linear sequential structure which is typical of our thinking and speaking. In most languages, this linear structure is made explicit by the use of alphabets which serve to communicate experience and thought in long lines of letters. The natural world, on the other hand, is one of infinite varieties and complexities, a multidimensional world which contains no straight lines or completely regular shapes, where things do not happen in sequences, but all together. A world whereas modern physics tells us even empty space is curved. 
It is clear that our abstract system of conceptual thinking can never describe or understand this reality completely. In thinking about the world, we are faced with the same kind of problem as the cartographer who tries to cover the curved face of the earth with a sequence of plain maps. We can only expect an approximate representation of reality from such a procedure, and all rational knowledge is therefore necessarily limited. The realm of rational knowledge is, of course, the realm of science, which measures and quantifies, classifies and analyzes. The limitations of any knowledge obtained by these methods have become increasingly apparent in modern science, and in particular in modern physics, which has taught us, in the words of Werner Heisenberg, quote, that every word or concept, clear as it may seem to be, has only a limited range of applicability. For most of us, it is very difficult to be constantly aware of the limitations and of the relativity of conceptual knowledge, because our representation of reality is so much easier to grasp than reality itself. We tend to confuse the two and to take our concepts and symbols for reality. It is one of the main aims of Eastern mysticism to rid us of this confusion. Zen Buddhists say that a finger is needed to point at the moon but that we should not trouble ourselves with the finger once the moon is recognized.
swoon. Green into blue, into me, into you. The ballet, so elegant and white, from the theater into the beauty of the darkness of night. Stars and clouds and the harvest moon spurs one to joyously swoon. Like a younger person in love, radiating an aura colorfully festooned, arm in arm, walking with the vibrancy of autumn in full bloom. Episode 443 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Declan Mulhall, Fritjof Capra, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Elvis Costello, Milado Negro and Flock of Dimes, Courtney Barnett, Ahmad Jamal, Sarah Vaughn and the Count Basie Orchestra, Branford Marsalis and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, 
I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.